Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we learn about California's new guidance when it comes to testing positive for COVID-19, including allowing infected people to return to work or school as long as they don't have major symptoms. The approach is being described as more relaxed and in line with how most people are treating the virus these days. But how much do we know about the highly contagious JN1 variant that's dominating this latest winter surge? And just how dangerous is it to keep getting reinfected with COVID? Two infectious disease experts join us to take your questions about living with the virus in 2024. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're in a COVID winter surge, so you may have noticed a lot of people around you who are sick. Wastewater data finds the virus peaking again, both statewide and nationally, and many hospitals in California are reinstating mask mandates. At the same time, the state's health department last week issued new, more relaxed guidance when it comes to isolating after testing positive, mainly that you can return to work or school, masked, as long as you're fever-free. Joining me to tell us more about the new recommendations and take your COVID-related questions, Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU and Bellevue. Dr. Gounder, so glad to have you back on Forum. It's great to be here. Also with us is Dr. Shruti Gohil, Associate Medical Director for Epidemiology and Infection Prevention and Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Shruti Gohil, also glad to have you as well. Great to be here. Thanks. And listeners, you can reach us, as always, by posting on our social channels at KQED Forum, calling 866-733-6786, again, 866-733-6786, and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Dr. Gohill, I'll start with you. So as I mentioned, California's Department of Public Health has issued new COVID-19 guidance. And one of the big changes is that instead of telling people to stay home for at least five days after a positive test, they're saying people can return to work or school when they feel better, when they haven't had a fever for 24 hours and their, and their symptoms are mild. What do you think of this change? I think it's really reflective of the new place we have arrived with COVID, um, in some ways, right-sizing uh, 
COVID-19 in the scope of all the other viruses we have to contend with and a return in some ways to a sort of a common sense approach, uh, minimizing the disruptions to, uh, to, to life as we have seen it in the last uh, several years. So, I mean, this comes in the context of, you know, layers of immunity of uh, vaccinated or naturally infected uh, patients in the, in the community, um, which dampens our, uh, both our symptoms, our um, infectivity, um, and also uh, uh, really an, a more educated population. Uh, we're hopefully now, uh, after three years, a little bit more attentive to our infection uh, symptoms and mindful of the testing and masking that should occur. Um, so in light of all of that, um, uh, I think this does fall quite right, even though uh, I recognize fully this is happening in the middle of uh, what is our current uh, cold and flu season and surge. Well, are they essentially suggesting that you don't infect people or infect people as readily if you're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, Dr. Gohill? I think that's right. I think there's a recognition of that, but also in in honor of the fact that, well, if you're symptomatic, you know, let's put the, the attention back on symptoms. If you're symptomatic, it could be any number of things, uh, and that really it's the symptoms that should drive your activity uh, more than anything else. Um, yeah, I think that there is a nod to that, and, and the fact that you could have flu or RSV or anything else. Um, putting the attention back with the public on the idea that symptoms should guide your your, your activities um, then puts puts a, a protective mechanism on all all viruses that could be circulating. Dr. Gounder, do you agree with this approach that the state is taking, or what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think in a country where we do not have paid sick and family medical leave, where we expect people to go to work sick, it's really hard to mandate that they stay home uh, and lose wages and maybe have to pay for childcare or have to stay home from work and take care of their child when their child is sick. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, a realistic uh, understanding of the situation. That said, um, many people have coughed cold flu symptoms are not masking. Many people are not testing. So guaranteed, you're going to have people who have COVID, who go to work, who go to school, who have COVID, who may or may not have symptoms and who will infect others because they're not wearing a mask. And I think that's uh, the challenge here is on the one hand, being realistic about how our economy works and what is expected of working people, uh, of uh, working parents and kids, uh, and also what that will mean, um, unfortunately, for, for public health in this situation. Yeah, it, it does rely on people to test and mask to be effective. And there are questions about whether or not that's really something that people are doing, especially to the extent that they did in the past, but even really doing all that much. We also have listeners weighing in already on the new state guidelines. Nancy writes, but what do these new guidelines mean for immunocompromised individuals? There are many among us. Are their lives being put at risk so that some infected people don't have to stay at home for a few days? Dr. Gohill, your reaction to what Nancy's pointing out here about the immunocompromised? Yeah, I think that's an, a really important question. And, and actually, Dr. Gounder's really great points about the masking and the testing. It's, it is uh, the the regulation, the update that was made uh, with CDPH was made with clear statements 
about masking and testing being required um, if you're going to go uh, go back in, uh, um, you know, earlier than five days, for example, if your symptoms have have relaxed. So absolutely, we do have. You know, I hope that um, after three years of uh, this type of um, arrested development of the entire globe on on COVID, that people have become more mindful and mass. If you if you compare our society's uh, uh, consciousness to 2019, pre-pandemic, um, people are asking these questions about masks. They're asking, this, um, having conversations like we are now about testing. Um, so all said and done, I do think that there is an increased uh, awareness and people will do um, masking and testing, but you're absolutely right. When you have immunocompromised um, uh, you know, family members, community members, or coworkers, you know, it's absolutely imperative that you, um, that you are mindful and do the testing and the masking. Um, uh, you know, uh, couldn't, couldn't underline that more. On the testing front, the state is also relaxing those rules, now only recommending testing if you know you've been exposed and you or someone you know is at higher risk for a more severe infection. Before this, the state suggested testing on the first, third, and fifth days. Dr. Gander, what do you think of this in terms of the new testing guidance? Well, there are a few different reasons to test, right? You test uh, for yourself. Uh, If you have a diagnosis of COVID or influenza, uh, you can access antiviral therapy for influenza. We have Tamiflu, we have Zoflusa, uh, which can reduce uh, your your period of infectiousness, uh, reduces your risk of hospitalization, also reduces your risk of death. Um, for COVID, we have Paxlovid, which also, again, uh, reduces your risk of hospitalization and death. And so you're not going to be able to access those medications uh, unless you get a test. And just a reminder to people, antibiotics are not what you need when you have a viral illness. These are the two viral illnesses for which we actually have antivirals. And so it does behoove you to get tested so you can access those, not be asking for antibiotics. The other reason to get tested is for protection of others. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, we don't always know who are the people around us who are immunocompromised, who are at higher risk. They don't necessarily disclose and should not be required to disclose their health conditions to you so that you know whether to get tested or not. I think uh, the way to get people testing more regularly is to make it as cheap, ideally free, and accessible as possible. And we just haven't done that yet. But that's really what it would take to make it more routine for people to test themselves and to hopefully mask um, when they are sick and infectious with COVID or flu or some other respiratory virus. We're talking with Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU in Bellevue and editor-at-large for public health at KFF Health News. Also Dr. Shruti Gohill, also professor of infectious disease at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine. And you, our listeners, are joining us. We want to know, well, what's your reaction to the new state guidelines or your questions about them? Also, how do you handle COVID today? Do you test when you feel ill? Do you isolate if you've tested positive? Do you tell people you have it or may have been or may have exposed them to it as well? How have the ways that you approached COVID changed 
in 2024. Maybe you had a recent infection. What was your experience? What did you do? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum on Twitter or X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. Our phone number is 866-733-6786. So Dr. Gounder, for the reasonably healthy person who maybe does not fall into one of the more vulnerable categories, what would you say is the kind of routine that you would recommend to keep the virus at bay for yourself and also protect others? What are some best practices for 2024, given the state that we are in now, which is much improved, of course, from a couple of years ago, as Dr. Gohill has been pointing out? What do you think, Dr. Gander? So we're talking about somebody who's young, healthy, but has COVID or the flu or something else like that. Yeah, but also generally yeah. prevention as well, if you want to add that in too. Okay. Yeah. So for somebody who's young, healthy, uh, who's been uh, vaccinated, uh, who's at low risk for severe disease, hospitalization, or death, uh, you know, you still are at risk for uh, transmitting COVID to other people. So ideally, you should be wearing um, a high quality mask. So high quality masks include N95s, KN95s, KF94s. I would say in general, N95s are, are less comfortable and are a big ask for someone in the general public to be wearing in this situation. I think a KN95 or KF94 is a good compromise between quality and comfort in this situation. We do need to figure out a way of normalizing wearing a mask. I think a lot of people still look at you sideways, especially at this stage in the pandemic, if you wear a mask, you know, why are you wearing it? Um, and to, to figure out a way to normalize that, like if you have uh, the sniffles or a cough that you do that um, in order to protect other people, and that's a sign of respect, uh, but we're not there yet. More broadly, uh, it, let's say you don't have COVID or, or respiratory illness, but you're a young, healthy person, you know, what else should you be doing? Um, we will be seeing likely uh, yearly updated COVID boosters, uh, also uh, ongoing yearly influenza vaccinations. Those are especially important, I would say, for the elderly, the immunocompromised, pregnant women, and kids under five. But for a healthy person who wants to take extra steps to reduce their risk of getting sick, maybe uh, reduce their risk of having to call out if uh, work sick or um, having a Thank you, Dr. Gounder. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about living with COVID in 2024 with Dr. Shruti Gohill of the University of California Irvine School of Medicine and Dr. Celine Gounder of NYU in Bellevue. Dr. Gounder is editor-at-large for public health at KFF Health News. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments about COVID in 2024. And Dr. Gounder, before the break, you were talking about vaccines and the importance of getting vaccines as a good preventative measure and a way to make sure that others around you are safe as well. I have been struck by the fact that the percentage of people getting the vaccine today, the booster today, is right around or just under 20%. What do you think of that? Well, I think the populations in which that's most concerning are people over 65. Over 90% of COVID deaths now are among people over 65, and only about a third or so have gotten their yearly COVID boosters. So this is a very important population to be getting vaccinated, and they're not getting vaccinated at the rates they should be. Uh, A couple other populations that are extremely important also here are pregnant women. A lot of people don't realize that uh, pregnancy is a period of immunosuppression, uh, which is necessary in order to carry the uh, foreign tissue that is the baby. Um, But it also means pregnant women are at higher risk for various different kinds of infection, including COVID and the flu. And if they're vaccinated, there are multiple studies that have shown this now, they pass on antibodies that they make naturally to the vaccine. They pass those on to their baby and protect their baby. And we have seen those protective effects in newborns now documented in multiple studies. And then finally, uh, kids under five uh, are massively under-vaccinated. Many have not received their primary series. And while they may be at lower risk for death, what is the group that is after the elderly that we're seeing most in ERs and hospitals for COVID? It's kids under five. They have smaller airways, their immune systems are not as developed. And so they really do need to be vaccinated. Dr. Cohill, how often should we be getting boosted these days? Oh, yeah. Um, You you know, uh, it depends on your category uh, of risk. But if you annually at this point, we have the latest uh, vaccine and we um, would expect anybody. It's it's much easier than we previously had the two step and and then extra boosters along the way. No matter what your immune status is uh, now, if you haven't gotten it yet, it's not too late. Go ahead and get vaccinated. It takes about a week or a week and a half to get your antibodies up. And it's a matter of, um, of, of, of getting the vaccine into you. Do you have any thoughts on what it'll take to improve vaccine uptake? Dr. Gohill? Yeah, you, you, you mean uh, improve vaccine uptake in the communities? Yeah, you know, it, it's been such a struggle when we talk with our patients. There's so many different reasons why people choose not to get vaccinated. You know, before, um, before COVID came along, part of our, my job was to um, push vaccination for influenza, and we had a hard time convincing people uh, that this is really an important um, uh, uh, important for yourself and for the the public at large. I think those same um, ideas about uh, reluctances about vaccination still stand, uh, and it's a mixture of uh, concern about um, you know basically thinking you're not going to get sick enough to warrant uh, a vaccine uh, or um, potential for side effects. Um, I think public health uh, campaigns for vaccination have been very strong programs like this, try to get the word out. Um, but it really has been disappointing to see how much uptake there, um, the, the, how slow the uptake has been. My hope is that, you know, once COVID came through um, and we went through several of these surges, 
Now we're in a place where, okay, yes, we're realizing COVID's coming right back after the holidays that people are, um, uh, you know, not uh, not in a state of out of sight, out of mind, that maybe they'll actually go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, but it's really something that needs more study, to be honest. Yeah. We're getting some reactions to the guidelines. Courtney writes the new California state guidelines. I am very grateful for the new state's new common sense guidelines. If you feel sick, stay home. It shouldn't matter which specific illness you have. All respiratory viruses are high risk for the immunocompromised. Why single out COVID is different from the others. Noelle on Discord writes, this new guidance puts the immunocompromised at risk. The burden is shifted to the individual. Do people know they need to test using home tests several times? I'm afraid most people test once if the test shows negative. If you do not have COVID-19 symptoms and believe you've been exposed to COVID-19, test again 48 hours after the first negative test and 48 hours after the second negative test for a total of at least three tests. That's from the CDC website. Let me go to caller Don in Menlo Park. Don, what's on your mind? Hi, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I think this is actually really timely. In my family, uh, we mask when we're in large populations. Uh, my daughter is three, and she actually likes wearing her mask. So um, I think so culturally seeing more people with masks makes it easier for her to do that. Um, we actually had to test last week because our daycare uses a, the CDC guidelines for testing um, testing to go back to daycare. Um, so I'm intrigued by this new, um, these new California state guidelines. My concern, I guess, is, um, is how they can be interpreted as like, what are mild symptoms? You know, like a runny nose, um, your doc, the doctors who are on have mentioned that like, that could be allergies. I'm like, I have allergies. I have a constant runny nose, but I'm not contagious. So I think that's where it does get a little bit concerning, but also provides some flexibility. So um, the one thing I wanted to ask about um, was about the vagueness of what mild symptoms are, but also with the test, since the previous comment was about tests. And, um, you know, we have these tests we get from the government or we get through insurance um, at the drugstore, and they have expiration dates. And if those tests are going to become, um, have longer expiration dates, because I don't know how many people know that they can go and see if, if the tests are still viable, even if the expiration date has passed. Mm. So coming back to this idea, if we're, if we're going to test more frequently um, or not, but you reusing those yeah. tests to, to, to improve access. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, longer you raise a lot of really important Vague, vague, uh, vague, mild symptom things. Forgive me, Don, for interrupting you. Yes, you raise a lot of important points. Let me take them one at a time. First, Dr. Gohill, do you want to talk about just the practical application of California's guidelines? What what constitutes mild symptoms? Yeah, you know, it's hard. I I would say you'd have a a low threshold to think about what mild is. And um, we know our bodies uh, best. And sometimes with children, for these specific example, a caller brings out, you know, you, you don't, you don't know what they're actually getting. So I would lower that threshold and go ahead and get tested, particularly if you think you've had any type of exposure to uh, somebody else who was sick uh, with COVID. Um, uh, and, and part of the other side of these um, recommendations here is to not just focus on the fact that, yes, you do have to get tested every 48 hours, but also to stay home if you have your symptoms. If you're, if you're, 
if you have a child and they have a runny nose, it's a new one. You don't think it's allergies. Um, and uh, it, what's the right thing to do is not only just attend, but also stay home um, and or mask if you really think that they could be infected. Um, so it, it's a symptom-based guideline. In other words, do the right thing if you have symptoms, because A, even if you test for COVID, you could actually have the flu or RSV. You don't want to go into uh, daycare um, spreading that either. So yeah. um, it's, it provides a flexibility that is important not to just fixate on the testing. And don't use expired tests, Dr. Gohill? Yeah, you know, that, that's a good question. I, it's such an important question, because it's a, a question about resource and equity as well. Um, and uh, actually, the FDA has a really nice list of um, some tests that can be used past their expiration date. I strongly encourage people hmm. to go on that FDA website. If you were to Google it, you would be able to find it pretty easily. Um, but it, and you find your test and see, uh, you know, how long you can use it past the expiration date. Um, but know that if you are past the expiration date, a negative is not exonerating for you. A positive, of course, a positive from an expired test you should take you know, really seriously, a negative, you're going to have to retest um, and to improve the um, sensitivity of, of that test. Yeah. Dr. Gounder, I want to ask you about Don's final point with regard to repeat testing, because we are finding, it sounds like, um, that it is not always detecting, you may be getting more false negatives, especially early on in your symptoms, Um with COVID, and, and that's important to continue testing repeatedly. Can you give us some insight into why that might be happening with regard to, to rapid tests and whether you do recommend repeat testing? So what has changed over the course of the pandemic is our immunity, our immune response to COVID. And so what's happening is it's taking longer for you to test positive from the time of symptom onset because your symptoms are actually starting sooner relative to your exposure to the virus and your infection with the virus. So because people have pre-existing immunity, your immune system kicks in more quickly as it should, and you develop symptoms more quickly. So the timeline from exposure to infection to symptom onset has gotten shorter. The timeline from exposure to infection and viral replication that's picked up by the test remains the same. So the test is working just as well as it always did. The difference is we're developing symptoms earlier because we have immunity. Ah, so don't think that because you're having strong symptoms, you're shedding a lot of virus and that a negative test means it's not COVID. You may be shedding a lot of virus later on post some of these big early symptoms. Correct. That's exactly right. And so it is important to keep retesting because initially, you know, your your immune system uh, may be suppressing the virus enough that you're not shedding virus or uh, just haven't reached that level of virus that it's um, infectious to other people. Um, but, you know, I would use the test to determine if you are infectious or not uh, and repeat that in the context of symptoms. And is this new prevalent variant, JN1, does it have a shorter incubation period from exposure, right, um, to the point where it might appear uh, on a test, for example, but yet at the same time, or might be creating symptoms for you, but at the same time, paradoxically, may not show up on a test as quickly, Dr. Gounder? 
Not compared to other Omicron. Now, um, the original Wuhan virus had a longer incubation period. Delta was a little shorter than that. But since we've hit Omicron, they're all, you know, two, three day incubation period, which is very short um, compared to what we saw originally. But they're all about in that same range. So Jan 1 is really not that different from the other Omicron variants that we've seen. And also there's always the questions that come with a new variant, which is, is it more contagious, which it sounds like it is, but is it also more severe? Does it cause more severe symptoms? Correct. And so it's not causing more severe symptoms or uh, increased risk of hospitalization or death. That's what we call virulence. How bad is the nature of the disease it causes? But by definition, viruses are replicating, mutating, and the ones that will win out by natural selection as they mutate and replicate are the ones that transmit most efficiently from person to person. So you are going to hear about more variants over the years, um, and they will be more infectious relative to previous variants over time. And let me go next to caller Celia in San Leandro. Celia, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm calling as someone who has serious chronic illness and is part of a community of people who understandably are fearful of getting COVID and particularly long COVID. And so I'm hoping that the guests can help kind of um, help me square a couple of seemingly contradictory notions. You know, there's, there's a lot of news out there saying that increasing, you know, multiple incidences of COVID infections increase your chances of long COVID. Um, And so, Hmm. you know, that's important to know about. I'm just looking at a study or at least a write-up of a study from last month about that. And then at the same time, we hear a lot of doctors in the news talking about how, well, maybe it's not great to get COVID, but there is this accumulation of immunity with each infection. And so some people hearing that news might go, okay, well, Yeah, uh, you know, between being vaccinated and getting multiple infections, I'm actually safer. And so I'm trying to understand, you know, are these ideas contradictory or not? Um, You know, so yeah, anyway, that's it. I so appreciate that. So yeah, because I saw similar things, and I really did want to get clarity on that. So Dr. Gohill, let me go to you. How dangerous is it to keep getting COVID-19? Because we're hearing now of a lot of people who are reinfected that are on their second or third time with the virus. What do we know about that, especially since there is this study that gets cited a lot suggesting that it can be bad for you? Yeah, I think we have to appreciate that there, you know, it's a, um, two different types of population. Actually, probably a, a huge spectrum of the kinds of uh, immunity we have in our communities, and not all sizes fit one. So, um, you have a lot. The majority of people who get reinfected and um, uh, m- multiple times uh, often have progressively uh, either mild or milder cases as they go forward, depending on how robust their immune system is or how long it's been since the last time that they've been infected versus some people whose immune systems have not are, are getting progressively more inflamed uh, with uh, with uh, the second and third uh, I- infection and having more prolonged effects. So I think both things can be quite 
true. And we don't know yet who's who. I mean, we can guess that those who are more healthy, who've had better, um, you had milder diseases in the first place, will have progressively, um, uh, when they have more repeat infections, will have more progressively a milder disease. And those who've had bad COVID the first time around are more likely to have uh, a prolonged effects the second and third time. Hmm. So more rigorous study of this is needed. Dr. Gounder, what do you know or are reading about this in terms of whether or not successive infections create stronger immunity or weaker immunity or give us greater protection from long COVID or more vulnerability to long COVID? Well, it's probably some of both. Um, The data that's being talked about in terms of repeat infections is specific to the VA population. This is data coming out from the VA. So you're talking about almost all men, uh, older, a lot of smoking history, obesity, high blood pressure. So this is not necessarily generalizable to the rest of the population, particularly when we see that um, one of the risk factors for long COVID is in fact female sex. Um, So you're talking about slightly different populations, and I think there is a lot more that needs to be studied. One thing that is clear, though, is that the more immunity you have prior to an infection, the less likely you are to get COVID, or excuse me, long COVID. And so people who've been vaccinated multiple times are at less risk for long COVID. Uh, Is there a plateauing effect? So after three, four vaccinations, is there a plateauing protection uh, against long COVID? Uh, Perhaps it's that remains to be seen. You also have protection against long COVID uh, to, to some degree if you have immunity from a prior infection, but that means you're also uh, running the risk of developing long COVID from that infection. So if you really want to prevent uh, reduce your risk of long COVID, uh, vaccination is uh, along with masking are, are some of your best tools still to do that. Well, Robert writes, my wife and I have never stopped masking KN95 in all social settings and among elders or immunocompromised individuals. We have lived relatively normal lives, get the vaccines, test prior to large gatherings and in closed settings, and have remained COVID-free. Usually we experience no more than 5 to 10% of people in public are masked. Although we do not experience being looked at as freaks by those who are unmasked, in general, we are disappointed by the way the general population has approached this epidemic. We're hearing from you, our listeners, how you handle COVID today, your reaction to new state guidelines that are relaxing some of the rules that were previously put in place to try to prevent spread. Are there environments or situations where you take extra precautions? Are there questions you have about the new variant or new prevention or treatment tools? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More with Dr. Gounder and Dr. Gohill after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The state's public health officials have adopted a new approach that's being described as more relaxed and in line with how most people are treating COVID-19. We're getting your reaction to those, and we're hearing how you're living with COVID in 2024 with Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU and Bellevue, and also Dr. Shruti Gohill, associate medical director of epidemiology and infection prevention and professor of infectious diseases at University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Your listeners are sharing your questions questions, comments, experiences with COVID. And a listener on Discord asks, can the guests please speak to the, quote, immunity that people have post-COVID? I had COVID at the end of September 2023, tested negative in October 2023, and I'm trying to figure out when to get the vaccine, as I was supposed to get it a week before I got COVID. Uh, Dr. Gohill, I'll go to you. Yeah, um, so it sounds like two-parted question. First is how long does immunity last uh, after uh, vaccination or infection? Well, um, about two to four months, depending on your immune response, it looks like for for uh, post-vaccine. Uh, for somebody who's gotten infected, uh, we say that you can, it, it, about two months or so after your infection, you can go ahead and get uh, vaccinated. For some who are immunocompromised, we do um, we do push, we just push that a little bit earlier. Um, if somebody who, uh, patient comes in, tells me that they had COVID in the fall, you know, September, October, I would go right ahead and get that uh, vaccine. We're in the middle of a, a surge, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Lisa asks, how long should someone take Paxlovid? Didn't the initial study say seven to 10 days for mm-hmm. effectiveness? I've heard of several cases where longer doses prevented rebound. Dr. Gounder, I can go to you on that. Paxlovid, how long should someone take it? Yeah, so it's uh, FDA approved for five days. However, there are a number of groups who are studying longer courses of Paxlovid. I know of at least one study that hasn't yet been submitted for publication, but where their data found that with 10 days, you had no rebound of COVID and you saw no cases of long COVID after 10 days of Paxlovid. There's another study out of Yale looking at Paxlovid for treatment of long COVID as opposed to prevention um, that is in the works. Uh, So I do think there are um, aspects of Paxlovid prescribing that still haven't been entirely worked out yet, how best to prescribe it. Uh, I think we're not prescribing it nearly enough perhaps need to be prescribing it for longer and maybe in a broader uh, set of situations. Well, Andy writes, COVID can be deadly, of course, but these days it usually isn't. A lot of flus can also be deadly, but usually aren't, and other diseases too. Is it still the case that COVID is a greater threat than other communicable disease? I'm wondering if we've arrived at the point where we can stop treating it as an extraordinary disease worth all this focus. Dr. Gounder, what do you think? I think I've seen stats where it's still taking 1,200 lives a week. Yeah, yeah. I would say COVID is still an extraordinary disease. Um, It's not as deadly as it was does not mean it's not deadly. And the three most deadly viral respiratory infections are COVID, influenza, and RSV. And those three are the ones that really are the big killers we worry about that land people in the hospital. Um, And so those are the three we need to take precautions against. 
Well, let me go next to caller Rhonda in Pleasanton. Rhonda, you're on. Hi. Um, so I had a question about the the new rules. Um, my daughter actually currently has COVID and is still testing quite positive um, at 10 days, mm-hmm. though the time when you go back to work is now. Um, so there seems to be some confusion as to if you have a positive test, are you still supposed to quarantine? We still have her quarantining at home. Um, but do we worry about her still being infectious or like, do we still wait for that negative test? Like that part after the five days has gotten really confusing. Yeah. Well, Rhonda, thanks for that. And and Dr. Gohill, it sounds like, no, they don't have to isolate based on California's new guidelines. Uh, if their symptoms are mild or they're feeling a lot better and they're, and they're fever free, right? That's exactly right. Fever free for 24 hours and symptoms better. And I love this question because this is precisely what I think these new guidelines are trying to get at. We know that the uh, one of the uh, reasons you test positive uh, after uh, you've gotten infected with some people for as long as a couple of months, um, usually you clear up by around day 10 for your antigen positivity. But the, we have to remember the antigen and the PCR test, both of them will pick up uh, virus particles, whether that virus is dead or alive. And the key question is whether or not you're infectious to other people. These guidelines uh, that CDPH put forward is a nod to the fact that by and large, your infectivity drops um, significantly after day five, but you still have to be mindful wearing your mask and, and that kind of um, you know care for our community. Let me go next to Scott in Oakland. Scott, you're on. Oh, hi. I, I just I find it really maddening to when these regu- um, guidelines come out that are just not based in reality, just like, you know, in terms of knowing that people are not going to follow them. You know, masking doesn't really work without everyone, everyone, everyone participating. And when you put out guidelines and such that aren't based in reality, it completely erodes trust in public health. And, uh, you know, it's it's. It, it's just, it's really been so disheartening to see. Well, Scott, thanks for sharing that. You, We've had a couple of other listeners talking about that too, Dr. Gohill, just in terms of masking and the fact that it's just so much less common these days. Do you look at it that way? Do you frame it another way? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do think that, um, I wish there was more participation in masking and in uh, all of the things that we're supposed to do to protect other people, uh, let alone ourselves. But at the same time, I think that the um, if you look at a public health perspective um, and, and social disruption, school-related disruption and the impact on children, for example, um, and workplaces, economy, you know, balancing all of that together uh, when you know the actual risk is serially lower after a certain time period, like after day five, can you put common sense guidelines out there? I think what the caller is pointing out, rightly so, is that not everybody is exercising the same degree of common sense. But at some point, we have to respect the fact that um, that that our society needs to uh, fundamentally be uh, you know, rise to the level where uh, we educate on that, on, on symptoms, on working towards a society where we have better um, compliance with these things. And you can't always 
um, put a binary uh, regulation at the level of the state without impact, um, you know, down the line. Uh, so I do think that it's a, it's a hard job to be CDPH. And they've arrived at a place where I see um, a respect for all the different other viruses that are out there and a nod to the fact that we as a society should approach um, masking uh, like some of uh, the other non-U.S. countries where masking is considered a cultural norm. You know, I think we need to work on that. Um, so I, I couldn't agree with the caller more. The question is how is it that we can approach this in a mindful way? Well, Lana asks, can you ask your guests about the differences and differing side effects and risks of the COVID vaccine? I always get really strange side effects, such as sensitivity to touch for several days after getting the Pfizer vaccine. I recently tried the Novavax vaccine, and I did not have any strange side effects. Dr. Gander, what do we know about differing side effects, uh, any risks or greater risks associated with different vaccines? Well, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both mRNA vaccines. The Novavax vaccine is a protein-based uh, vaccine. It's a little bit older of a technology. Uh, and I think what's great is that we have different options for people, uh, depending on what their experiences have been. Another difference is the Moderna vaccine is essentially a higher dose vaccine than the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so some people have had more side effects with the Moderna vaccine. Other people like the idea of having something that's higher dose and, and perhaps in their in their view, more protective. Um, but again, you know, I think having different options is helpful here. Trying uh, perhaps a different uh, brand if a previous one gave you side effects. And then also consulting with your personal physician, because there may well be uh, reasons that you had the symptoms you had that may or may not be related to the vaccine. And really only a trained professional will be able to help you sort that out. Well, related to the vaccine, there's this other question from a listener. What to do about friends or family that are reading, quote, studies about the COVID vaccine, changing our DNA and making everyone more susceptible and lowering our natural immunity? This comes up quite a bit. I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Gohill, if you have any advice for trying to, to talk with people who may be reading things that are inaccurate or that are stoking fears about the vaccine? Yeah, there are so many great, large population-based studies, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people at the uh, country level, UK I'm thinking of particularly, as well as some in the United States. You know, when I encounter patients who bring me studies, um, you know, it, it's a moment for educating uh, them and showing them that epidemiology is really, really important, you're, uh, who you're picking to study. And more often than not, the, the, those studies that people point to are poorly done and um, have small sample sizes or somehow biased in some way. And you can't go through all of those nuances with every single um, you know, patient or question. But when you um, are able to present that this has been studied in, in now millions, of people, and you have less than a couple percentage uh, reporting any side effect that's worthy of um, deep concern. Um, it's overwhelming that um, that this is a safe vaccine, um, and and I also think actually um, that it's that trust with um, if you're talking about a patient doctor type of relationship, it's the trust over time that you you have with patients that you build. And you can, you can, um, you know, sort of rely on that. But, but in the community, when you have family members, um, 
you know, I strongly urge you um, to find those uh, websites, you know, uh, that talk about these large scale studies and, and share these with them to counter the information, because I do think that people are just, um, um, you know, sort of seeing what they're seeing in their small bubbles and what they search for rather than the preponderance of evidence. Yeah, a couple of things I would add on to that. So some of this is also being propagated by um, Surgeon General, uh, the Florida Surgeon General Latipo. Uh, And I want to be very clear, biologically, mRNA cannot integrate into your DNA. This is a complete falsehood. This is not biologically correct and shows a real lack of understanding about just basic molecular biology. The other uh, disinformation that he has been propagating, among others, uh, is that COVID vaccines can cause turbo cancer. There is no such thing as turbo cancer. Um, And even if you had something that were uh, a carcinogen, it takes years from the time of exposure to start to see those cancers. I think, you know, tobacco and smoking is a classic example. It takes years before you get lung cancer. And so anybody who's claiming, oh, we already have data on this, it's clearly patently false. And the other issue is this idea of like, do your own research. Unfortunately, if I were to type in, um, does uh, COVID, do COVID vaccines, do the mRNA uh, integrate into your DNA because of the way search engine algorithms are designed, they're going to surface exactly the stuff that's going to support that conclusion. You're not going to be able to, quote, do your research in a way that's going to surface peer-reviewed, balanced uh, research on this question. Glad to have you debunking that. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Rosemary asks, now that we have learned how useful tests can be, will we start seeing more of them? For example, for RSV and flu. I don't know if you know the answer to that, Dr. Gounder, but would also love to know if there are other prevention tools that are being developed on the horizon that you're excited about. Yeah, in terms of testing in Europe, they actually already do have rapid antigen tests for RSV, flu, and COVID. Imagine that. You have a cough, cold uh, symptoms. You take a test. You know which of the three it might be. Um, we have not approved those yet. The FDA has not been um, has been dragging its feet on some of that, just as it did, frankly, for the COVID uh, rapid test here in the United States earlier in the pandemic. And that would be a really important test uh, tool to have. You also have other diagnostics companies, uh, for example, Q, Lucera, and others that are trying to develop um, a broader array of tests people could take at home, not just for respiratory illness, but for things like urinary tract infections, STDs. You know, so really to be able to put more power in the hands of the consumer where you can test yourself for various different conditions as soon as you start to have symptoms. Well, this listener asks, how much does testing for the flu and COVID cost without insurance? What about antivirals for the flu and COVID? Dr. Gohill, do you know, and also resources for people, because the government has resumed mailing free COVID tests if you ask for it and so on, but resources for inexpensive or free testing of various illnesses. Yeah, and there are a number of, as you mentioned, uh, uh, state-based, at least in California, and Uh, state and county-based testing um, for uh, people who do not have insurance or under-insured. And yes, uh, the the cost is is definitely an issue uh, for um, particularly for treatment. Um, Recently, uh, for example, for Paxlovid, um, it looks like the NIH who had a a surplus of 
uh, Paxlovid and um, uh, uh, had Pfizer is now distributing some of that medication. Mm. A course of Paxlovid can cost as much as fourteen hundred dollars. Um, so that that's that that can be prohibitive for somebody who who doesn't have insurance. That said, there are catchment um, access uh, clinics that can um, that can prescribe and, and provide Paxlovid. So that should it shouldn't deter uh, somebody from seeking care, but yeah, absolutely it's going to be harder. And that's, that really is something we need to fix and is a symptom of our underlying healthcare structure that, um, that needs some real um, rehauling. Test2treat.org, I understand, is what you're talking about there with the NIH-funded site to provide Paxlovid, covidtest.org for the antigen tests from the government as well. So I, I'd just love to get both of your thoughts just in terms of where we are now, in terms of the biggest cultural shifts you've noticed as infectious disease specialists, as um, as people who who have seen, <laughs> experienced, and and analyzed the way that our society has responded to this pandemic and other viruses as, as we've been made aware of them. Dr. Gounder, I'll start with you just in terms of the biggest shifts you may have noticed, maybe culturally in the way that we deal with infectious diseases. Yeah, frankly, I think we've become more individualistic than we were even before. I think there is very little tolerance for uh, public health recommendations or guidelines at this point. I think, frankly, it is everyone out for themselves. Um, and I think the only way to reverse that is when you say, oh, you should stay home when you're sick. Well, are we making that easy for you? Are you losing wages to stay home? Are you losing wages to stay home with your child? If we don't make these things cheap, ideally free, easy, and the social norm, people are just not going to do them. The other thing I would say is we um, there are two different ways of thinking about some of these things, what I would call a clinical mindset and a public health mindset. Uh, you know, somebody had said, well, if everybody doesn't mask, um, then it doesn't work. Well, that's a clinical mindset, which is every single person who did not mask, who got COVID is a failure. And, and yes, on some level, that is a failure. But if you have enough people masking at a public health level that you can reduce transmission by even just 10 or 20%, that's huge from the perspective of the hospital that's having to mm -hmm. take in those patients, even that much of a reduction can be important. So imperfect interventions can also still be very important. Dr. Goyle, we have 10 seconds, but a thought you want to leave listeners with along these lines? Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Gounder. It, it does seem that um, maybe on a more hopeful note, I do think that if we were to check our mindset 2019 versus now, that we at least are thinking more about hand, hand hygiene and what to do when you get symptoms to, to mask, to stay away from each other. Um, I think that that common sense is at a higher prevalence than it I'm was glad before, to and that. I just hope it's better. Thank you so much, Dr. Gohill and Dr. Gounder. My thanks also to Francesca Fenzi for producing today's segment and our listeners for the great questions. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.